everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist for the Kansas City Star with the 15th episode of Mellinger Minutes for your ears. Excited about the show this week. You guys came through with some great questions. Uh, Royals Vice President JJ Piccolo comes by to explain how they're handling their most precious commodity, their young starting pitchers. We then run that plan by one of the nation's most respected experts in the field of preventing, rehabbing, and treating pitcher injuries. We're getting more and more actual sports to talk about. I love that. I think most of you do, but I think all of us have varying degrees of hesitation about the league starting up. I want to emphasize a point that's been made by epidemiologists that I think is relevant here. It is not about whether these leagues have positive tests. And even we've seen in the MLS's back tournament, FC Dallas and Nashville have both had to drop out. But it is not about these positive tests, because of course they're gonna have positive tests. The standard should be whether they're having more positive tests than they would without starting up, right? Athletes, coaches, other staff, they're like all of us, right? Like nobody's immune to this. We will see positive tests with leagues starting up, but those same people would have had a certain number of tests without the league starting up. Think about it like this, you know, does the exchange of playing sports, but doing it with strict protocols create more cases or fewer. It makes sense to me anyway. And if you look at the percentage of positive tests in the intake, like when guys were transitioning from sort of the world to, you know, inside the bubble or other protocols from the leagues, the the follow-up tests, the tests that are taken after guys have been in these protocols or in these bubbles, the positive rate is less than it was initially. And that leads me to believe that there's a strong argument, at least, that these protocols are working. I don't know if it's gonna, <laughs> if that means we're gonna complete all these, all these seasons. I doubt it does, uh, but I think we at least have a chance. Okay, the big news this week, obviously, Patrick Mahomes signed a contract worth up to $503 million. Uh, it will expire in 2031. That is so far into the future that some college football programs don't even know who they'll be playing in the non-con, right? But I want to make two main points here on this. First, um, honest to goodness, he signed a team-friendly contract. I know that sounds ridiculous, but there is a column up on KansasCity.com right now explaining this in more detail. Obviously, I hope you read it. But here are a few bullet points. Like Deshaun Watson, who is a terrific, but if we're being honest, objectively inferior player compared to Mahomes, he is going to sign a contract soon, an extension soon, that will give him more new money than Mahomes' contract provides in the first three or four years. Dak Prescott will do the same. Uh, you know, granted, that comparison isn't apples to apples because he's in a franchise tag stage of his rookie deal. But still, um, the, the other point is that by calculations by ESPN's Bill Barnwell, listen to this, Mahomes' extension calls for $3.7 million more of new money in the first four years of his extension when compared to what Jared Goff signed and if you adjust for cap inflation. One more time, $3.7 million more of new money in the first four years of the contract when compared to Jared Goff. <laughs> $3.7 million Jared Goff right? Okay. Uh, the longevity. Let's look at that. This is really where this half billion dollar figure comes from, right? Like I think we were all pre prepared for like a, you know, uh, four years, $170 million, five years, 210, whatever. But the, the, you know, that half billion that comes from the 10 years, right? So if you look at this over the last six years of Mahomes' deal, he is set to make an average of about $49 million. That's a lot of money, right? Uh, you can live a comfortable life on that in Kansas City, regular date nights and everything. But if you project conservatively, the salary cap should be well over $300 million by then, maybe 350 and only grow from, from that point forward over those last six years. So if that's the case, 
Mahomes will be making the equivalent of about $30 million per season now. That's, I mean, he might be making less. That's less than the franchise tag right now. That's less than a lot of quarterbacks around the league. I swear to God, he will probably be in line for a restructure that gives him more money if he wants to. Honestly, like this is a deal that makes it easier for the Chiefs to surround him with talent when compared to a more traditional extension that would cover four or five years at a time. Okay, uh, the second main point on this, and you're getting this because I've had some emails and voicemails and seen some tweets about this being way too much money for an athlete to make. Like uh, a voicemail the other day called it an immoral amount of money. A letter the editor ran in the paper the other day calling Mahomes a real jerk for asking for so much money. There was an email I received that said Mahomes should have taken half this much to ensure lower ticket prices and more accessibility for middle and lower class fans to buy tickets. You know, look, beyond the fact that he really honestly not being paid out of line when compared to other top quarterbacks, I want to focus on this idea that Mahomes or any other athlete is greedy for wanting this much money. It's real easy that email, I can empathize with that email in some ways. Like it is an awesome idea for athletes to take less money so that ticket prices can go down and, and more families can have access to the games. That is an awesome idea, completely unrealistic. I've been trying to make this point for years. I have a feeling that I could do this job until I turn 150 um, and I would retire making the same point, but I'll keep doing it. I, I think it's important. The players are not the reason that ticket prices are high. If Mahomes signed for 250 million instead of 500 million, that money's not going to you or me or lower opportunity kids. It's going to into the owner's tax sheltered pockets. You know, look, I get it. Like athlete salaries are reported all the time down to the dollar. And, you know, it's worth noting here that in the NFL, those biggest figures that are reported initially, those are often inflated with bonuses and incentives that will never be reached. Meanwhile, the owners keep their books private regular fans with busy lives you got too much going on to obsess over the particulars and you might not consider the fact that owners make so much money on tv contracts that are about to go way up again by the way in a few years they don't need to sell a single ticket not a t-shirt not a 14 dollar beer or whatever to turn a profit look I, it's objectively true i think a lot of us would agree with this in terms of like value to a society that athletes probably make more than they should while you know teachers and cops and many doctors and <clears throat> uh, local sports writers make a lot less. Uh, I'm kidding about one of those, by the way. But this is the world we live in, right? Um, athletes have worked their lives to develop a specific and elite talent that has been shown to be worth billions of dollars. Mahomes actually did take less than he could have commanded. And you know, remember that every dollar the Chiefs don't spend to the cap, that is not a dollar that goes to the community or lower tickets. That's going to Clark Hunt. And Clark Hunt could spend Mahomes' salary on a Saturday night without checking his bank account. Okay, uh, time for a quick break here before we get to questions from Shaggy Shane, Owen, and Gavin. Um, after that, J.J. Piccolo explains how the Royals have attempted to navigate the awkward pause of the season with their star pitching prospects, and we run the plan by one of the nation's top experts on the subject. Please participate in next week's show. Call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. One more time, 816-234-4365. The more help I get, the better show, I promise. Uh, okay, quick break, and we'll be back with the questions. Okay, guys, uh, we're back. Let's get right to it with Shaggy Shane and the Chiefs question. 
Yes, this is uh, Shaggy Shane, and my question for your podcast is, how much of a struggle do you think it will be for Willie Gay and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire to learn the Kansas City Chiefs offense without a rookie minicamp and an OTA? How much of a challenge do you see this being come preseason? Thank you. This is crazy, but guys are going to start reporting in less than two weeks. <laughs> uh, and the point that Shane makes here is something that will be really interesting to monitor. You've heard me and others make the point that the Chiefs figure to have an inherent advantage over most other teams by bringing back 20 of 22 starters and the entire coaching staff. You know, the NFL in most years does not allow for much continuity. And here we have an offseason where continuity has more value than ever before. The Chiefs then have more continuity than anyone else. That is an inherent significant advantage. But there are rookies to worry about. I think we're talking mostly here about Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, you know, the dynamic running back from LSU taken in the first round, and Willie Gay Jr., the very fast linebacker from Mississippi State taken in the second round. Uh, the Chiefs drafted six players, and they have expectations for all of them. But I think Edwards-Hilaire and Gay are the most likely to contribute immediately. They're going to have to be smart. Uh, they're going to have to be focused and they're going to have to be able to adapt from, you know, learning on a field, like you said, during minicamp and giving themselves a runway for success by learning basically off the tablet. It's interesting, right? Because uh, I think some coaches and executives and not just in the NFL, but in other sports too, said that they believe their communication with players has actually improved during all this. You know, there's no substitute, right, for, for human to human contact. But, you know, without travel, without as much going on, there's simply more time for meetings and conversations, even if they're over, you know, Wi-Fi or the phone. The logic makes some sense, though I do wonder how much of that is just, you know, a natural human tendency to want to make the best of a situation. But either way, uh, the rookies will be further behind this season when compared with other draft classes. I don't think there's any way around that. And, you know, if you're looking at this purely from the Chiefs' point of view, though, you know, their rookies are going to be asked to do less than those at most other teams. And their rookies are going to have more institutional knowledge helping them along than most other teams. I'm talking about teammates and coaches there. So I don't know. I, it just seems like they're going to be further behind than they would with minicamp. But I think that it's another way that the Chiefs are going to be more ahead than other teams. Uh, it is all coming up Chiefs here. But OK, uh, here's Gavin with a question about something that's been in the news and on a lot of minds in Kansas City this week. Hi, Sam. My name is Gavin. I'm calling from Overland Park. And I'm wondering, do you think the Chiefs' name will be changed? And if you do, what name do you think it will be? And why do you think it will be the Monarchs? Thanks very much. So uh, we talked a little bit about this on the Sports Beat Kansas City podcast the other day. And, you know, this is something that I'm going to do some, I am doing some reporting on right now with the idea of writing a column in the, you know, the next week or so. Um, look, I want to be straight up, transparent, honest here. Uh, I need to be more educated on this than I am at the moment, uh, particularly hearing perspectives from Native Americans on all sides of this issue. Uh, but here's where I stand initially. There is a hell of a lot of difference between the Redskins, which is defined in the dictionary as a racial slur and everybody else. One tier below that, I think there's a difference between the Indians and everybody else. At that point, we're talking about the Chiefs, we're talking about the Braves, the Blackhawks, uh, some universities, several of which have already changed their nicknames, right? But like to me, and I wanna emphasize this is just my initial thought and I'm more interested in what this reporting reveals, uh, the Chiefs shouldn't need to change their name. 
but they probably should change some of how they operate. Um, you know, there, there's nothing, again, this is not the Redskins. There is nothing inherently offensive about Chiefs the way that there is Redskins and, and even the Indians. Uh, the line that needs to be monitored then here is, you know, between honoring and appropriating. And that can be blurrier than it seems. You know, it's worth noting here, I, the Chiefs have done their homework. You know, they, they've had conversations, they've formed partnerships, uh, they hold a Native American heritage celebration, a home game every November, you know, which is Native American History Month. They distribute literature, they hold ceremonies that at least in theory expand education and exposure. You know, the most obvious points of contention here are with fans in headdresses and face paint and the tomahawk chop. Uh, I think that's what we're going to end up focusing on. Again, I'm, I'm curious what a First Amendment lawyer would say about fans and headdresses. Uh, I'm not sure. And, and I'm, I mean, like, literally, I just don't know the legality of banning certain types of looks in a stadium. You know, uh, the team can keep those fans from being on the video board. They can continue to ask network partners not to show them on TV, but to just flatly ban it. Um, I, I don't know. I just I don't know if that's possible. The chop is similar. Uh, you know, the team can stop playing the song, but the team can't keep fans from starting the chop and chant on their own, which, you know, I assume that would happen, at least initially, if the Chiefs stopped playing the song. Uh, but the team does have a lot of influence here, especially right now, um, right? But, you know, they can discourage players from chopping. They can put messaging on the, you know, the ribbon and the video boards. They can do a lot of things. I'm just, I'm really curious about where this all goes. There, this is a movement. There's a feeling around this issue and others involving race that I can't remember in my lifetime. You know, my instinct is that change is coming uh, to the Chiefs, but I don't know that that change, I don't think that that change will be as drastic as a different name. You know, even though you're right, the, the Monarchs would be pretty sweet. Okay, uh, last question here from Owen, and it is about something very important. Hey, Sam, this is Owen from Topeka. Hear me out. I contend that Memorial Day is by far the best summer holiday because the weather is nicer, it's a perfect grilling holiday, and you get all of the yay America without all the humidity and loud boons. What are your thoughts? I detect no lies. Uh, there is an obvious appeal, right, in the 4th of July. I think most of us can see that. Fireworks can be fun, um, you know, even if I have a few doctor friends who tell horror stories. But, uh, you know, for the most part, you're right. Like, Memorial Day gives you 95% of the benefits and patriotism and all that of the 4th, but with, like, half the heat and humidity. Um, you know, in normal times, uh, I'm on a fishing trip every Memorial Day, like, outside basically the entire time. Um, but check the weather starting next week, or at least check the weather starting next week if you kind of hate yourself, because uh, I think we're going to have a string of like eight or nine days where the lowest high temperature is 96. Ugh. This time of year outside just kind of sucks, right? Like an overcast day with temperatures around 90 feels like a cold front. Team Memorial Day forever. Um, okay, uh, we're back. Uh, one more quick break, and then we're going to be back with Royals Vice President J.J. Piccolo. The Royals made an enormous bet on starting pitching the last few years, and they doubled down on that by taking Texas A&M star Asa Lacey with the fourth overall pick in this year's draft. It's a fascinating development. Uh, the rest of the industry has moved toward power hitting, loading up on the back end, high velocity relievers. Uh, the Royals are building up some of that velocity too, but particularly with the starting pitching, this is zigging while everyone else zags. Uh, it's against convention. 
Um, then again, you know, the Royals won the 2015 World Series largely by going against convention. Uh, they were early adapters on loading a bullpen, and they finished that season second to last in the league in home runs while finishing with by far the fewest strikeouts. Uh, this group, the front office then, has had success going where the other teams aren't. Anyway, the, the Royals need to be right on at least some of these starting pitchers or else we're sort of just all wasting our time, honestly. Like there, there are a million different ways that starting pitching prospects can break your heart, uh, often through injury, and that development was made significantly more difficult when the coronavirus forced baseball to pause in mid-March. As we get back going, inter-squad games this week, I wanted to talk with uh, Royals Vice President J.J. Bacolo about how they're handling their most precious commodity through some challenges that come absolutely without a playbook. You know, this is this is part science, part just, you know, instinctual. You know, we feel like if guys can get 60 to 80 innings this year, it will certainly have a positive impact on 2021. The problem is you don't get those innings back, right? And now that guys are pitching in, you know, can we call this like semi-competitive situations again, these inter-squad games, uh, you want to make sure that these innings aren't getting ramped up too quickly. That's where a lot of innings or injuries come from. And part of the prevention here is in making sure guys weren't just on the couch the last three or four months. Um, okay, here's JJ again. Throughout this process, we've, we've remained in contact with all of our players and our pitching staff is done an unbelievable job from not only the daily communication, but even having kids send their videos on a regular basis. You know, we've even done some live bullpen sessions where it's FaceTime, you know, and somebody's holding the camera and the coach is able to talk to the pitcher through FaceTime, um, you know, while, while they're throwing a bullpen. All that being said, that was doing what we could do to make things work in the current environment. But now when it gets down to game competitive innings, you know, the group that's in that 60 is going to be, you know, in a more advantageous position than the guys that aren't in that 60. That 60 that JJ's talking about there, that's the player pool. Um, that includes, obviously, the guys you'd, you'd have expected to be on the 26-man opening roster in a normal year. But um, also, those are top prospects, right? Like Brady Singer, Jackson Coar, Chris Bubich, Daniel Lynch, Austin Cox, some others. Uh, the most notable name in the organization not in that group of 60 is Lacey. Uh, some teams did put their top pick in the 60, so I wanted to ask JJ about that, too. Uh, we discussed it. But you know it's it's really tough. I mean, it, like it's already, it's already tough when you put when you take a guy like this year. We put all of those four guys and mentioned we put them in spring training. You know that's always a decision. If you're if you're not convinced they're ready to compete for the team, you put them in the camp. But ultimately, you put them in the camp because of the experience, being around veteran guys, being around the major league pitching coach, getting sort of the rhythm and the flow to a major league spring training. There's value to that. But the way this camp is going to be run it's going to be so different that it's not even anywhere close to the experience of a spring major league spring training. Mm -hmm. So because, because of that, we just felt like we're, we're jumping the gun. You know, what do we really expect Ace Lacey to do this year? We did discuss it. You know, we had, you know, in-depth conversation about it, but because we believe there's going to be a development league of some sort come August, September, October, you know, he fits perfect for that. You know, so okay. we didn't want to push it knowing that you know, we feel fairly confident, you know, barring any more outbreaks, you know, you know, things that are out of our control. So, sure. you know, just the indications we've been given, speaking to other teams, knowing the desires of other 
farm directors, AGMs, GMs, everybody wants some sort of league in the fall. And ACE mm-hmm. would get a chance to pitch there and, you know, probably get 30 or 40 innings, you know, in the okay. fall. And and now he's in a good spot, you know, counting his innings in college, you know, again, first full season next year. If he throws 120, that's great. I don't, we don't worry about him going 120 next year, especially if we get this fall development in. So, so we just didn't, you know, I know some teams did it. I didn't read over all the rosters just yet, but I know some teams, you know, brought their first round pick in this year. Um, you know, in our case, we didn't think it was the, the right thing to do. And it had nothing to do with his ability, just more to, sure. more with the environment and the setup of things. So that's why they made the decision on Lacey. Uh, the Royals do tend to be conservative with the workloads of their pitchers, particularly the young ones. And it's an interesting spot right now because teams, and not just the Royals, but across baseball, they don't like their pitchers jumping more than 20 to 30% in terms of workloads from one season to the next. Uh, with a 60-game season now and hopefully um, 162 games next season, that's quite a challenge, even with the development league in the fall, You know, even with guys working out during the break. Okay, so here's JJ's breakdown of how the Royals are approaching that, managing these workloads. Yeah, we, we've sort of come up with this loose formula so for so somebody like we have some pitchers in the minor leagues right now and some of the guys coming to the 60 they were able to face hitters you know so Uh we were able to log what they threw so even though their their first actual inning may not be until june i keep saying june but july 24th you know we know that they've thrown they've had three ups and that that's sort of where we kept guys so 15 pitches down go up for another 15 sit down another 15 so three innings we've been keeping them at three innings you know once sometimes twice a week just depending on who it is you know we try to get guys on five days if we know they're a starter and they're custom in five days we try to get them on that five day but what we're doing let's just say let's just say a guy through Ten times, and he had ten three-inning outings, you know, during the shutdown. We're, so it's thirty innings. We're really counting that as about fifteen, you know, just because okay. the intensity right. level is different than a game. So uh, now we're logging that they've had three ups, three innings, but <clears throat> to try to translate it to game intensity, we're sort of kind of giving them like half credit for an inning. Yeah, um, and then we'll factor that in at the end of the year to then come up with, okay, 20% increase here. This is what he can comfortably get to. So that's interesting, right? You know, like JJ said, part science, part instinct. Um, You know, JJ knows what he's doing, uh, but I wanted to get another perspective on this. So I called Glenn Fleissig. Uh, Dr. Fleissig is the research director at the American Sports Medicine Institute and knows as much about preventing and treating pitcher injuries as anybody in the country. This is literally how he lives his life, is studying this stuff. So, um, okay, I want here's Dr. Fleissig on whether to anticipate more injuries this year. Essentially, you know, he's saying that the biggest risk in having more injuries with this current setup is that guys who came into the start of summer, summer camp pushing too hard, too fast, uh, might blow out some ligaments. Um, but there's also an idea that the last few months of decreased workloads has given some arms to time to repair. So anyway, here's Dr. Fleissig summar- summarizing those two points. The answer is probably different for different people. But again, the danger is the guy who did not keep up and is going to hit the gas pedal and accelerate too quickly. He's in danger of uh, damaging his arm by... Uh, 
by not building up his muscles and loading the ligaments and tendons before they're ready. Yeah. Um, okay. On the other hand, the guy who uh, the other guys kind of water break gets some extra uh, needed rest time. So a lot of this is on those guys using the last three or four months productively. The Royals have given them guidance, uh, but ultimately it is the pitcher's responsibility to walk that line between too much rest and too much pitching. Um, I told Dr. Fleissig how the Royals were handling this, you know, their plan of part science, part instinct, how they're calculating everything. I thought his reaction was telling. Um, here it is. I think that's a really good idea. I, I, I mean, I, you know, guarantees, I don't know all the answers, but what you just laid out to me, what the Royals are doing, and probably similar to what other teams are doing, I think that's a, a very good idea, the best I could think of. Uh, for, and for, because of the reasons as follows. First of all, pitching some innings, bullpen innings essentially, during the shutdown was the right thing to do. Uh, sitting around doing nothing is not enough. And, uh, and on the other extreme, pitching full games would have been too much. So uh, what you're doing is right. And counting them as half is, the, is a, a reasonable mathematical formula trick. Um, because uh, bullpen, the stress of pitching uh, three innings in a bullpen uh, setting is not the same, is less stress than pitching three innings in a game. It yeah. is. The velocity is down, and therefore the stress on the ligaments and tendons is down. So to kind of count it half is a, a reasonable thing to do. So we keep coming back to this point, um, you know, both on the podcast and website, which is everyone is guessing, right? The health experts are guessing, the doctors are guessing, baseball teams are guessing. Uh, the Royals absolutely have to get some production from this group of pitchers. And the outcome there is gonna depend significantly on how they manage this break. The fear is a blown ligament or two. Uh, you know, for now, all we know is they put a lot of thought into the plan and that the plan is endorsed by one of the nation's foremost experts. Okay, uh, that's the show. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I do hope we're worth it. Thanks to Randy Mason and Savannah Smith for putting this together. And one more time, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and let's treat each other well. <laughs>